contracts. Intellectual property. Labor law. And much more. Make up the, the wonderful world of entertainment law. Let's take a moment and learn about this vast area law. Lights, camera, action. And scene. Hello, everyone, and welcome, one and all, to episode 15 of End Scene and Entertainment Law Podcast. I'm Tony Costas. And I'm Evan Narr. Tony, how are you doing today? I'm looking outside. It's, it looks like it's about to downpour right now. It's one of those uh, weird bipolar, you know, summer days here in New York where one day it's really hot and then the next day it's really cold. But, uh, you know, this uh, this inconsistency is is something. But on the on the bright side of things, hopefully we get good weather tomorrow because it is officially New York Law School's commencement day. Congratulations to the class of 2023 that is graduating. Yes, I, I totally forgot. My friends and I had a running joke that I would show up at every law school graduation until the end of time <laughs> because I, I have a ton of mentees that you know that are graduating this year and whatnot. I said, "Don't worry, guys. I promise I'm not going to be there this year." <laughs> but congrats, uh, hats off to everybody. And now the bar exam begins. It's going to be tough, but you know we're both here. If you have any questions, so Absolutely. feel free to reach out to us if you're a law student out there. And if not. Tomorrow's just a normal old day for you, and you don't have to worry <laughs> about the bar exam. Um, so we had a bevy, of one of Tony's favorite words. My favorite, favorite <laughs> word of all time. A bevy of different topics. First of all, rest in peace to Tina Turner. Yes, my God. A- 83. God bless uh, her. What a life. An absolute icon and legend with a great voice. So rest in peace to her and uh, condolences to the family, of course. But on to lighter things, we did – well depending on your point of view, <laughs> we, we wanted to talk about the Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith decision that was just ruled by the Supreme Court, I believe, last Thursday. So like six Thursday. days ago, mm-hmm. Thursday is the day where Supreme Court releases their decision. Uh, we'll also talk about the wide web, pun intended, of interesting Marvel Disney related news that, while distinct, can also be connected in one way or another. More to come on that. And we'll also talk about the latest on the EA Sports College football video game and how players can, quote unquote, opt into the game. You know, the NCAA football games have been kind of done away with for some time now. But now with all the new developments of name, image and likeness happening, it was ripe for discussion and for bringing an iconic franchise back to the forefront. Totally. And lastly, as Tony alluded to, uh, graduation is around the corner. I believe some students in, at other law schools, not New York Law School, have already had their graduation. But in light of the graduation season, Tony and I wanted to share our favorite school-oriented movie at the end for our fun question. And that should be a great one for sure. And as always, Evan and I are lawyers, but we're not your lawyers. So anything that we say in today's episode is purely our opinion and not representative of our employers in any way, shape, or form. And anything that we say in today's episode is to not be construed as legal advice. So the first discussion that we want to have is the Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith case that was just gone down in the Supreme Court. And it really will have ripple effects in the intellectual property community for years to come because it is now considered precedent for those uh, layman in layman terms. Precedent is really something that you need to follow when the court gives a decision. Um, Precedent is something that for years on end until it's overturned or changed, precedent is something that you need to follow. So this has huge precedents, huge implications. So we wanted to break it down for you. Um, 
again, the, the two biggest IP cases are the VIP products versus Jack Daniels case, which I believe we discussed in episode three. Uh, we discussed in episode three and we, we mentioned it in our last episode that we didn't have an update yet, but yes, it's very likely if we got the Goldsmith decision last Thursday, Hey, we're recording today, Wednesday, May 24th. It's very possible that the Supreme court will have their decision on that next Thursday. If not next Thursday, certainly one of the Thursdays to come before the term expires at the end of June. Absolutely. So we have the VIP products case. And then of course the Andy Warhol case. So for listeners that don't know, you probably have heard of Andy Warhol, uh, he passed away, I believe, in 1987. Sounds right. La- late 80s. Um, he was actually the subject of the Broadway show, The Collaboration, in which Paul Bettany played him. And it detailed his, his relationship with uh, Basquiat, the other famous artist who died way too early as well. So this case really involves copyright fair use and a photo of, of course, the legendary late singer Prince, which was taken by a photographer named Lynn Goldsmith. So in 1981, Lynn Goldsmith took a reference photo um, of Prince that she licensed to Condé Nast, the major media magazine conglomerate who you guys have probably heard of. Mm -hmm. In 1984, Condé Nast took that photo and licensed it to Andy Warhol, which Andy Warhol then used this photo taken by Goldsmith to to create his Prince series. And, you know... um, Warhol was known for his eclectic sort of photography where there was a ton of different colors and whatnot. I'm sure you've seen the Campbell's, uh, you know, chicken noodle soup uh, Warhol photo that he's probably most known for. Anyway, this is one of one of the many eclectic photographs that he took and he he did it the right way. Uh, He got it licensed from Condé Nast. So there were a variety of silk prints of prints and a variety of different color schemes and tones. In 2016, Prince passed away, and Vogue put out a special edition of its magazine celebrating Prince's life. Condé Nast contacted the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Arts, uh, Andy Warhol Foundation for the Arts, to license one of Warhol's sing- silkscreen prints of Prince. Oh my God, say that's that three a tongue twister. <laughs> silkscreen prints of Prince to be featured on the magazine cover. Lynn Goldsmith, of course, sees this and says, "Hey." That's my photo. Remember, it was done the correct way with licensing initially. Uh, Lynn Goldsmith, of course, licensed it to Condé Nast. Andy Warhol licensed it from Condé Nast. But now uh, Vogue only goes directly to the Warhol estate, and and Goldsmith's like, hey, that's my photo. With that being said, Goldsmith sued the Warhol Foundation for copyright infringement, but the Warhol Foundation contends that the Prince series falls squarely in the realm of copyright fair use, which we've talked about time and time again, a defense to copyright infringement. In fact, they argued that Andy Warhol's use of Lynn Goldsmith's photo was transformative fair use, which I think Tony will go into, but transformative meaning you've done enough to the photo or the subject of the copyright where it's different in the eyes of the viewer. Uh, It's a very, I would say, objective test i think uh, well i would actually contend that it was once objective and has slowly become more subjective right. that's generally the landscape of fair use but more so in the context of the transformative fair use uh, discussion interesting so um along the way goldsmith won each case at the federal level before the case made its way to the supreme court so here we are spoiler alert the supreme court ruled 7-2 in favor of goldsmith uh, but the good news is that the Supreme Court didn't really change the fair use doctrine too, too much. 
But the bad news now is that it will likely make artists think twice, like Warhol, who rely on fair use to make artwork about whether they are doing something that could be an infringement. And again, it, it's as simple as licensing the photo. If if Vogue went to Goldsmith or I, I guess this is this is weird because it's technically Goldsmith's photo, but Warhol repurposed it. Anyway, we've said this time and time again, always license something. <laughs> oh, oh, that's the that's the right way to do it. But Tony, you know, as a IP professor, pun intended, uh, what what are your thoughts on this case and what does it mean for the landscape of the IP world? So it's a fascinating case. I was really intrigued by the decision. Um, a lot of great detail in there. I think um, when it's all said and done, this case truly highlights or at least provides a special emphasis on the true meaning of transformative fair use. So for anybody that doesn't know, we've talked about it before, but we'll reiterate it for the sake of it. Um, fair use, as Evan said, operates as defenses to copyright infringement. So long as you are using someone else's copyrighted work for criticism, commentary, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research. And what I tell my students time and time again, I'll say it here. If you're not using it for criticism, commentary, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research, like the old, good old game of Monopoly, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Um, typically, fair use will have better legs to stand on when it is for those permitted uses. And so if you are using someone else's copyrighted work for one of those purposes, then you go into a four-factor analysis. Not one factor is dispositive of the other, but certainly all four factors will weigh in favor or against the fair use argument that is being made by the defendant that is raising the fair use argument. So I want to pay a little, so obviously there are four factors. You look at the purpose and character of the use, the nature of the copyrighted work, how much of the copyrighted work are you using, and the effect of market harm from your use of someone else's copyrighted work. For the purposes of this discussion, though, I want to highlight the first factor because that's the one that the Supreme Court pays heavy emphasis on, the purpose and character of the use. That's where you get into an analysis of the criticism, the commentary mm -hmm. aspect. Mm -hmm. But that is also where you get into a discussion of transformative fair use. And as Evan was alluding to, transformative fair use um, touches on how transformative your use of someone else's copyrighted work is, such that it has new expression, meaning, or message. And I think the concept of transformative fair use was articulated very well in another iconic Supreme Court decision, Campbell versus A. Cuff Rose Music. It's a seminal case on copyright fair use that I think works very much in tandem with the Andy Warhol Goldsmith decision here. That case dealt with a lawsuit between Roy Orbison and Skywalker Records, the record label for Two Live Crew, where um, essentially Two Live Crew wanted to make a parody of Oh Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison. They went to Billy Dees and Roy Orbison asking for permission to use the song. Roy Orbison and Billy Dees denied permission. Skywalker Records and Two Life Crew went ahead anyway and made their rendition of the song. And um, it employs a lot of the same themes. In fact, it, they, it uses the same exact bass riff, the same exact uh, melody, and more or less lyrics are the lyrics are the same, but they're modified into Live Crew, um, into Live Crew's version. So we're going to play actually a brief sample for you guys to listen to. We're going to play the Roy Orbison version first, and then we're going to compare that to the Two Live Crew version. Walking down the street 
So as you can see, very distinct bass riff. I mean, you heard it right there, Evan. I mean, it's like, it's as distinct as that, you know, bum, 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 you know, which the Supreme Court argued is the heart of the song, if anything. For sure. Um, So the court argued that even though the other factors weren't weighing quite in favor of Two Live Crew, the first factor was a clear, was what gave them the slam dunk win. And the Supreme Court basically argued that the lyrics were transformed to touch on romanticism in the 1980s that were a stark difference from what romanticism was like in the 1960s when Roy Orbison wrote his song. I mean, you know, think of it. It's 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 a white guy, clean cut, writing about in a very modest manner about romanticism versus two life crew rapping about women with big butts and hairy butts and this every type of butt known to mankind. Very different narrative. And yet the Supreme Court found that that was enough of a transformative quality that there was new expression, meaning or message. And that was kind of an arti- a very good articulation of the transformative fair use argument. You know, what's crazy. This sounds eerily similar to the Ed Sheeran case. We, we spoke exactly about this Ed Sheeran thinking out loud. I referenced was discussing his, you know, how he was coping with the loss of his grandmother. Um, and the, you know, let's get it on is sexual in nature. Much so, so this is this is very you know we're talking about butts versus you know the other subject you're talking a white, about a, the whitest guy known to mankind <laughs> trying to get a girl yeah exactly Exa- interesting well I guess it's both about wooing somebody <laughs> in, in some capacity <laughs> albeit a you know a more formal approach <laughs> right exactly um, it, actually if you think of it 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 was like um, kind of like natural courtship like being you know chivalrous versus cat cat calling if anything if we're being very technical but that that supreme court case which dates all the way back to 1993 or 1994 imagine nearly 30 years later still was was the basis of this argument for the andy warhol case and the court really really tried to emphasize what did andy warhol do that was transformative from the Lynn Goldsmith uh, photo. And the bottom line is seven justices agreed that there was no transformative quality. They both evoked the same message. You're looking at art. You're looking at one of the most successful musicians known to mankind, simply overlaying color and different color tones is not enough to evoke a different message. At the end of the day, the the photo that was taken by Lynn Goldsmith is editorial in nature. Mm-hmm. And I think that the photo that was portrayed by Andy Warhol was also to be portrayed editorial in nature, albeit with an artistic spin on it, not enough to carry, carry it over the finish line for the transformative fair use argument. Of course, the two justices that disagreed with that point of view were Justice Kagan and Chief Justice Roberts, which I found to be quite interesting. I was expecting a bit of a more even split down the, the board with the Supreme Court. But both of them basically argued 
in in more more or less uh, this argument, if Andy Warhol's you know prints are in a museum available for viewing, how is that not you know proof positive that the type of work that he does falls square within the realm of fair use? You know, so uh, it was a very interesting argument nonetheless uh, that was brought up by the in the dissent. But um, I basically to touch on what Evan said earlier um, in terms of this case not royally butchering the fair use doctrine. That's actually what I'm what I take away as the clear win here. The Supreme Court did not create new law. They, if anything, they reinforced what existed in Campbell versus A. Cuff Rose music, and I'm good with that. Yeah. Still, that said, I think the fair use doctrine is still flawed. Going back to what I said before, it's shifted away from being an objective test and more of a subjective test. And I think that's where you still enter tricky territory. But all in all, it's not like the Supreme Court came up with new theories out of thin air and said, "Okay, this is how the fair use doctrine is going to operate here and out. So, um, you know, obviously a very intriguing uh, decision, uh, a win for Lynn Goldsmith, three for three here. She defeated (laughs) a thousand, baby. That's a sweep right there. Um, and you know, as Evan said, this is definitely going to be a, a you know wake up call for artists who are thinking about using fair use, and they're going to have to evaluate a bit more carefully uh, the whole transformative fair use discussion um, anytime it comes up in their um, you know in their repertoire. Great, that will end our discussion on the Andy Warhol case. Let's move on to topic number two. For our second topic, we wanted to delve into a series of interesting Disney Marvel related headlines that feels a bit like the Pepe Sylvia scene. And it's always sunny in Philadelphia. You know, um, my God, what am I, why am I forgetting it? Charlie Day, the scene where he's trying to, he has a map. It's a meme that you see all the time where he looks so disgruntled and he's like, has a map that's pointing to all these different directions. All of Pepe Sylvia's mail gets returned. Why is it? Because there's no Pepe Sylvia. Then I go to Carol in HR. I knock on the door. There's no Carol in HR. <laughs> Such um, a great scene. It's a great scene. And so that said, Tony and I wanted to be thorough in our explanation of these headlines and how they all connect and try to spin a proverbial web for you because Spider-Man may be involved. Um, <laughs> so let's start with the first news. Uh, the bombshell news that Disney was officially going to close its Star Wars themed. I wouldn't even call it a hotel. It's ex- it's an experience, really. That sounds uh, accurate. Yeah. The Galactic Star Cruiser. And what's stunning about this is that the Galactic Star Cruise costs nearly $350 million to build. And I've seen some videos on TikTok and whatnot. It's basically as if you are on a Star Cruiser um, for several nights. And it's like as if you're taken into the lore of star Wars, right? There's like, you know, um, topically related food. There's, there was a fight between Ray and Kylo Ren. I think that where there was a real lightsaber that was used or something. You saw that, which they actually registered a patent for too. Yes, they did. IP is everywhere. IP is everywhere. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you're boarding a three day, two night cruise ship. Although you're not really, are you, I don't think you're moving at all, right? No, but here's the funny thing. Uh, There was like a little bit of an expose because part of the trip, the galactic trip, is that you take a trip to Batu, aka Uh Galaxy's Edge. Right. And what, there was video that, or photos that surfaced of these trucks that kind of like U-Haul trucks and there's a door on the side. And basically when people board onto like a, I guess like a, a ship or whatever that would travel them to Batu. Uh-huh. It's basic. They're basically just boarding the back of a of a truck, 
and they're being driven to Galaxy's Edge. Oh my god, like that is so pathetic. I don't even know. Like, come up with something more creative, Disney. Jeez. I mean, I, I have to admit though, the Rise of the Resistance ride is so unparalleled. No, it's, it, it's unbelievable. It is, and so anyway, there yeah, there's lightsaber trading, a variety of different music experience, and much more. The problem that ultimately led to its closure was the cost. It was very expensive. It was $4,800 for two guests. And for a family of four, it was $6,000. And economy being the way that it is right now, I mean, you know, going to Disney alone is expensive. And for a family of four, you are going to spend around that. But again, you have the hotels, you have four different parks and a ton of different experiences. You're not really relegated to one era, even though the experience is cool as hell. But you're not in prison either. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, So anyway, so I literally have seen headlines where the Walt Disney Company was hemorrhaging money to the point where the Disney Parks and Resorts decided to pause certain voyages and even offer cast members a 50% discount just to go. Uh, Unfortunately, that was not enough to keep the Galactic Star Cruiser in air, and it will have its quote-unquote last voyage on September 30th, 2023. So it's coming up very soon. Uh, What's interesting about it is that Disney just got the trademark registration for Galactic Star Cruiser in the USPTO. um, And now it's just being shut down like later this year. (laughs) So embarrassing. just, Just bad timing. So by October 1st, Disney will have vacant land on the Hollywood Studios property. Uh, So what could this mean, really? Let me kick it over to Tony to explain the second headline. So the second headline still involves theme parks. So if you're following along, we're still in the same general uh, genre, but we're going to travel across the Pacific Ocean all the way to Universal Studios Japan, where it was just announced that in uh, January of 2024, the Amazing Adventures of Spider-Man will officially close down after 20 years. For anybody that hasn't gone to Universal Studios, so um, good. The Amazing Adventures of Spider-Man is such a great ride. I guess it's it, well. It's a 3D ride. It, it's on a track. Basically, like it's like you're fighting the Sinister Six alongside uh, Spider-Man. I know that there's Doctor Octopus, Electro, Sandman, um, Go- Green Goblin, Carnage, Carnage, and, and there was a, there was a Water Dude. M- maybe one of the like the yeah. I think I think um I guess like one of those like water villains that was in uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. I guess. Got- the, one of the yeah. elementals. Yeah. I don't know. But either way, yeah. So I'll never forget they're on, on the ride when you first get on a uh, Spider-Man's like, this could be the most dangerous night of my life and yours. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, of course. When he That's a great impression, impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, of course, it is a very memorable scene, the the splash of water that you get when the when the water villain comes at you. That's the only reason I remembered what the villain was. <laughs> <laughs> so this ride is available in Japan also. And so it's going to shut down after 20 years. And um, this is kind of interesting because uh, this, how Universal even has a Spider-Man ride uh, culminates all the way back to the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, when Marvel was also in its own way kind of hemorrhaging money where it was trying to stay afloat, really wasn't, um, you know, really wasn't uh, doing well business-wise. Um, and so we ended up, you know, they, they ended up coming up with, uh, you know, creative ways of trying to keep the business afloat. So they figured out a way to to do that by way of licensing rights out to their comic book characters. And so they worked, they cut a deal with Universal, which this deal is available on the SEC website. You can check it out there. And so 
the deal is between Universal and uh, Marvel to basically make a, a theme park land based off of the Marvel characters. The condition was that Universal would have exclusive theme park rights to make a theme park based on Marvel characters east of the Mississippi River. And likely, I'm sure that the, that this deal allowed for the development of this ride overseas in Japan. Now, as it is, this deal is very restrictive for Universal because they can only use primary and secondary characters. Any other ancillary characters that kind of come in, that are created later on in, in by Marvel Entertainment, those characters are not entitled to being developed into rides by Universal. So, for example, that's why you have a Guardians of the Galaxy ride all the way in Walt Disney World, but you don't have a Guardians of the Galaxy ride in Universal. This also means the possibility of maybe developing a Miss Marvel ride in Disney World, but not in Universal Studios Orlando. So and they, then, do, they do. Oh, Miss Marvel. I thought you meant Cap. Captain Marvel is in Disneyland Paris. Right. So, but but the Universal rides don't have um, any. I don't. I don't even know if they. I'm pretty sure they do have Captain Marvel, like the Carol old school Carol Danvers version, but not the new iterations. Sure. Like I don't Brie even Larson. think they have, like a Photon, which actually that's a good segue. The other aspect of this deal that makes it also super restrictive is that um, we we don't have, uh, or Universal rather, does not have the, the ability to make um, any theme park rides or attractions or anything of that sort using the Marvel Cinematic Universe ca- uh, uh, characters. So right. they're stuck to the comic book characters um, that are you know part of the comic book lore that has been historic to Marvel for decades. So my thought, is that if Universal Studios in Japan is shutting down Amazing Adventures of Spider-Man and, you know, this ride will cease to exist in January 2024, you know, I hate to say it, but this could be the beginning of the end of Marvel-themed rides at Universal. And I think that there is a world where Universal could entertain that thought because they're building tons of other themed lands on their property they just announced that they're going to build a minions themed land at the yep. open at the right right at the opening of the theme park right um i'm sure that with you know the continued expansion of different properties that they have on hand they probably are going to expand they have the nintendo world in uh in universal california they do have nintendo world so i mean th- there's a possibility that maybe they'll you know take superhero island take every ride off there and just start from scratch and maybe rebrand it into super Nintendo world, which would be great, honestly. Um, so all that to say, if we're connecting all the dots together, if universal studios, Japan is going to close down a Spider-Man ride, that could mean the closure of the Marvel superhero Island ride as it is. Cause it's basically stuck in like the 1990s, uh, that, which could- I, which I kind of love though. It, it, it's nice. It's retro. Yeah, it's yeah. nostalgic. Sure. Absolutely. And, and I think that's universal's whole MO. Too. Absolutely. The, the E.T. ride, I mean, King Kong shut down, but Jaws, um, Men in Black, all these movies that were, and The Mummy, these movies that were really great in the early 80s, late 90s sort of thing is kind of their shtick. Absolutely. I feel. Oh, uh, well, it, the, I, I've always, I've always associated Universal with like that, like my childhood of like nostalgia, old school sci-fi yeah. movies. So yeah. very much so. I totally agree. So I think that we could see a revamp of Marvel Studios, of Marvel Superhero Island into some other land for Universal, which now means that this could be the prime opportunity for Walt Disney World uh, or Walt Disney theme parks and resorts specifically to step in, take that vacant land in uh, Galactic Star Cruiser that 
that once stood there and now develop it maybe into the East Coast version of Avengers Campus. Now this could mean the start of the development of a Marvel-themed land actually at Walt Disney World, which would be insanely wonderful and, and a very creative way of developing that that IP into something. I have two questions for you. So logistically, I'm not sure. Where is the Star Cruiser uh, theme? Where, where was the Star Cruiser located in, in conjunction to Hollywood Studios? Do you know? So I, I I know it was I know it's on I know it's on Hollywood Studios property. Uh, I am looking it up uh, pretty uh, quickly here because I'm curious because in in California in Disneyland the Avengers Campus is like literally within the park. So I, I'm curious logistically how it would work transporting people there. You so could put them in the back of the truck like the Star Cruiser. So so based on what I see here, this uh, this looks like a satellite map. Galactic Star Cruiser is kind of snug underneath the parking lot. What which what I'm assuming is uh, a theme of uh, might might be Hollywood Studios' parking lot of okay. some sort. It looks like there's a driveway that then would take you to the front of the Galactic Star Cruiser. And there's a road that I guess is where all the people board the 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 quote unquote U-Haul truck ship, whatever you want to call it, that then takes them down a road right to, I guess, the back lot of where uh, Galaxy's Edge is located. So it's not too far off from where Galaxy's Edge is. Um, it, it just seems like a lot of grass, parking lots, and roads are what's separating uh, Galaxy's Edge from Galactic Star Cruiser. So maybe it's, the, it's logistically practical. Then it it is practical. It's just a matter of how how exactly it will get done, but it is possible. So obviously, this is a great opportunity that that's happening. But here get here comes the third headline. Um, and and again, if you're following along so far, what we've talked about is the closure of Gal- uh, Galactic Star Cruiser, the closure of the Universal Studios Japan version of the Spider-Man ride that may be may lead to the eventual close of Superhero Island in Universal Studios Orlando that then could lead to Walt Disney World developing its own Marvel themed land. But now, enters- now, now I have a question real quick. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't wouldn't that violate the agreement that they can't have the Marvel stuff on the East Coast? That's why there's no. So Universal could. So it's a, it's a an agreement that's in perpetuity, um, but the either party can terminate. All right, Disney um, can negotiate. Or Disney can negotiate those. So rights. Disney Disney cannot unilaterally build this Marvel world without Universal's okay. Or it could be that Universal tells Marvel, hey, we're just canceling the agreement. It's not, And there are actually three conditions that are laid out in the agreement. I definitely know that one of them is that it's not generating enough revenue mm-hmm. or two, that the upkeep is not um, – it, it's hard to upkeep the property. I would imagine that for the purposes of voiding this deal, they're probably going to say that it's hard to upkeep the property. Um, maybe even the revenue aspect of it, they probably could, could crunch the numbers and see that Super Nintendo World – you know, revenue wise generates better dollars than maybe sure. superhero Island. So maybe sure. that could be the other catalyst that terminates that deal. Okay. So, sorry for interrupting. So now we have the third headline, the third headline, which is a massive one. We're going to take a little bit of a time warp back to 2021, where you may recall the ma- massive headline that the estates of Steve Ditko, Lawrence Lieber and other comic book writer estates pursued a lawsuit against Marvel Entertainment to terminate the copyright assignment of iconic Marvel characters like Doctor Strange, like Spider-Man, a, a bunch of uh, you know iconic Marvel characters that we've come to know and love. The argument that they made back then is that Steve Ditko, 
Lawrence Lieber, all these other comic book writers were acting as freelancers, as independent contractors, and they independently created these characters and solely assigned copyright ownership over to Marvel, which in the 1960s, and, you know, they ran with it. Under the Copyright Act of 1976, there is ter- there is terminology in Section 203 and 304 that allows um, either the author directly or the author's heirs by way of an estate to terminate the copyright assignment so long as it's done within a specific term. For a living author, it's usually within 35 years, I think even 40 years um, of the assignment. And for heirs, I believe it's somewhere around 50 to 60 years. I could be a little bit off on the years, but I definitely know it's a little bit longer for estate heirs. Um, so they're obviously you know, trying to exercise that term um, on that basis. Now, Marvel, of course, contends, no, these guys were always employees of Marvel. They created it within the em- their employment term. Th- this is the work product of Marvel, not their own individual product. Right. So, this, so this has been a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Well- As of last week, May 19th, both parties have filed motions for summary judgment, where basically, if you don't know the terminology, uh, filing a motion for summary judgment uh, is typically done when a party believes that they have an overwhelming and ample amount of evidence that would lead a judge to say undisputably, hey, this party is the clear winner here. It's a great and efficient way to just get the trial done and over with. You get a default judgment. You don't have to spend the time, effort, and money to have a full-blown trial. You save that. You save that headache. Um, both parties have filed that motion, um, again, making the same consistent arguments. But here's the crazy thought. Um, we don't have a decision on the motions yet. If I'm being perfectly honest, I'm going to predict that both motions will be denied. That said, um, if Judge Lewis Kaplan of the Southern District of New York were to accept the motion for summary judgment by the estate, right, the estates, the comic book writer estates, which again, I think that that's not likely, but if he were to accept the motions for summary judgment that were filed by the estates of Steve Ditko and Lord Sleeper and these other comic book writers, now this means that those estates are the copyright owners of Spider-Man, of Doctor Strange, of Doctor Octopus, of Iron Man, and all these other comic book characters that were created by these illustrators. And now this means that if you want to make a theme park attraction after Spider-Man, you got to go to the estate of Steve Ditko. If you want to make a Doctor Strange movie, you're going to have to go to the estate of Steve Ditko. That is no longer the property of Marvel. So right. it's kind of it's kind of crazy to think that this is a possibility. And I mean, as eerie as it sounds, like I wouldn't want that because I think, you know, as a fan, it'd be nice to not have like that division of labor. I know that this uh, kind of came up in some regard with the Superman and the Batman uh, writers where I know Bob Kane and Bill Finger created those characters. And for the longest time, there was a legal dispute involving uh, those estates and DC Comics. Ultimately, justice was served where they were given proper credit for the creation of those characters. But all that to say, DC still owns the copyright to those comic book characters. At the end of the day, you know, to think that Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, uh, Green Goblin, all these other Ditko, Lawrence Lieber characters out there that were created over time, to think that these rights are going to revert back to these estates, uh, it's, it's a pretty, it's, it's pretty crazy to think. I, I wouldn't say that it's it's uh, terrifying. I think that's a bit of a drastic word to use, but it is crazy to think that if Walt Disney World were to carry through on developing a Marvel-themed land you know, albeit it's conditional to the termination of the universal Marvel deal that was signed 30 years ago. It's crazy to think that if that happens by the time 
a, you know, uh, a decision is ruled on this specific dispute between the writers and the, the Mar- Marvel Entertainment, you know, there is a, there is a possibility that Walt Disney World will be writing letters to the estate of D- Steve Ditko and saying, hey, can we make a Spider-Man ride? And it would be up to him, the estate, to say yes or no, or yes, it's going to cost you this much. So a weird, I think this weirdly highlights how everything, all of this is all connected to one another right. and uh, truly shows, I think, the the kind of like the causal chain effect that does take place within the intellectual property space, within the, you know, the, sp- the space of, uh, I guess, entertainment media business. Um, but it is pretty fascinating that all these headlines kind of happen all at once. And I, I kind of have my own Pepe Sylvia moment. <laughs> it's it just really, and Tony, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's just so interesting how there are so many things that go on behind the scenes that go into these, go into the the planning of theme parks. Like you need to have the space, you need to have the rights to do so. You need to decide, you know, are you going to be infringing on anyone else's rights if you're going to be building in this land? Are there any like, you know, territorial sort of um, limitations? Do you need to go to an estate to use a character? Um when these characters show up at Marvel Superhero Island, you know, character people dressed as the characters, cast members, like what's involved with that? You just, me and you as consumers, just go to the park and like, okay, great, we we see a guy dressed in an Ant Man suit, but you know, there's probably labor stuff involved. That you know, can they have it identical to the costume that they have in the movie? Like these, there are these small things that you really need to consider, uh, and, and all from a legal perspective as well. And even and even think about the merchandise aspect of things, oh, yeah. merchandising, um, m- merchandising, which it's even more unique in a situation like Universal Studios Orlando, which does sell its own Universal themed Marvel merchandise, yep. but they yep. also sell like Iron Studios, those massive you know statuettes that are based on the MCU characters. You know that's the extent of any MCU branding that they can have in the theme park, which is pretty crazy. They can't even use, they can't even plant uh, Tom Holland's version of Spider Man on a T shirt in the in the gift shop right after the Amazing Adventures of Spider Man. Do you know that one Universal shirt that everyone has with the Spider Man that's like red and blue, and like it's I don't know, it's kind of like very like neon looking. I think I know what you're talking about. You, like literally, I'm gonna go on Google right now. If you type in Spider-Man Universal Studios t-shirt, it's this one that I've uh, literally, it's the first one. Let me know what you see. Let's see. Spider-Man Universal Studios t-shirt. Studios t-shirt. Let's see what we got. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry, no pun intended. Yes. You know what I'm talking? Yes. That's the only one (laughs) I ever see. And I see it all the time as a Floridian myself. That is hilarious. Anyway, uh, so that will wrap up the conversation on that. We hope you found that intriguing. Again, this is all speculation at this point. Well, I mean, the lawsuit itself is not speculation. That's very much happening. But <laughs> we're timing- hypo- we're basically hypothesizing that Avengers Campus is going to come to the East Coast. You it heard it have. here. You heard it here first on End Scene. But that's just speculation. That's just all we're saying. Speculation. Lastly, we want to briefly touch on the latest development. I think that came out a week ago about EA Sports College Football video game. And it, it's making, you know, a comeback. I think the last time they had it was 
2013, I think. Yeah, it was um, uh, with, with Desmond Howard, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, oh no, very, no, 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 my God, Denard Robinson. Denard Robinson, that's right. I, I knew it was a Michigan player, but yes, absolutely. And and I'm looking online right now and on Amazon for Xbox 360 NCAA Football 14, which was a decade ago. It's going for $278, a relic of its time. What? Yeah, it's. I I remember I had 2008. The guy with the that went to Boise State. I don't know who that is. Oh, um, the quarterback, right? Yeah, I don't know who it is. Okay. <laughs> but any, anyway, so this this is great news. We knew that college football was making a comeback. But with the new developments in the name, image, and likeness now, where college players can profit and, and enter into um, you know brand agreements and whatnot and make money for being in college, whereas they made absolutely $0 up until recently, this is huge because here now they can – um, have their name, image, and likeness in the game. Uh, I, I see right here, this partnership will include the chance for all eligible FBS players to opt in to have their likenesses in the EA Sports College Football. This is from an ESPN story. Um, if players want to be in the game, EA Sport, if players do not want to be in the game, EA Sports will create a generic avatar and player in that athlete's place. So you'll see like QB number six. But I would I would argue if you're a college player, and there's only what, like 50 some odd roster, 60 some odd roster spots on a football team, you'd want to relish in every chance that you can. You're going to get paid for it. Why wouldn't you? Mom, I'm in a video game. You know, how right. cool would that be? But this this could not have happened if not for the name, image, and likeness um, sort of legality that's been happening in the world today. Tony, what are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, the only reason why we're having this discussion is because of the legendary UCLA player himself, Ed, Ed O'Bannon. O'Bannon. Uh, iconic par- uh, part of the UCLA championship team in the 90s, uh, legendary player uh, in college basketball in his own right. Um, th- it all started because uh, EA Sports, the video game developer for the NCAA games. No, no, no. You had to say it right. EA Sports. Sports. It's, it's in game. the game. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. It was on cue. I, I, not scripted. Like, not scripted whatsoever. Um, so EA Sports um, de- was the, the video game developer for these um, college board themed games. And there was a edition of the game for college basketball that I believe was like the 25th anniversary. It was like legacy teams from the years. So probably have like the Fab Five from Michigan or, you know, probably like the UCLA team that Ed O'Bannon was on, which actually that's what sparked it all. Ed O'Bannon saw himself in the video game, except his name wasn't there. It was whatever number he Cent- was. Center number 34 or whatever. Right, right. So he sees himself. It seemed like overall physique and look. You know, he he has the same type of build and stature down to even the shooting style, very akin to how he shoots a ball. And so he argued, well, I'm not in college sports anymore. I I think I should be paid for this. Now, pause for a moment. Uh, NCAA, prior to all this NIL litigation and policy underway, normally college sports players do not get paid for any in any aspect of college sports. That was the old rule. It actually would be like against the law to do that. Right, exactly. To, To bribe players, yeah. To the point that there had to be like certain measures in place, like even with agents who were uh, almost like operating as boosters and yeah. were kind of like t- a bit two-faced. And that's how we ended up with the 
uh, Uniform Athlete Agent Act, the UAAA, which which was also created in part to protect um, athletes who were part of, you know, uh, you know, schemes with agents to, who were, you know, were stealing money and not really providing the services that they promised. So, you know, when you're a college player, when you agree to sign with the NCAA, you agree that you can't be paid in any capacity, um, including any marketing, promotional material, things like that, which arguably a video game like this does operate as such. Meanwhile, you know, NCAA spends millions, if not billions of dollars on advertising for March Madness alone. They're a profitable. Yeah, they're a profitable industry. It's an unbelievable uh, aspect of business. So the argument that Ed O'Bannon made is if I'm not a player of the NCAA anymore, I'm, I'm out of the system. I should be paid for my likeness appearing in the game. And so he, along with other former college athletes who also noticed their likeness in this type of video game, coalesced, came together, and they filed a class action lawsuit against uh, the NCAA and EA Sports. And there was one other entity. I think it was College Collegiate Licensing something or other. Sure. Um, but there were three entities. Ultimately, they ended up settling the EA Sports uh, aspect of things. The case was inherently a an antitrust lawsuit. And actually, all the lawsuits that have happened as a result of, of Ed O'Bannon have been more or less antitrust-oriented uh, decisions. Basically, the argument being made that the NCAA has acted in a very anti-competitive manner. They've acted as a monopoly, hoarding all this money and not allowing uh, any sort of free competition for the athletes to make money in some other capacity. I think the the nail that really like just sealed the coffin for the NCAA was the uh, Supreme Court decision that went down. Uh, now it's almost two years ago, the Alston decision, which was... I mean, pretty harrowing to hear Judge Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, tell the uh, NCAA that uh, they're not above the law. I mean, that that was pretty crazy to hear a Supreme Court justice speak almost as if the NCAA was acting in a criminal nature. And mm -hmm. um, shout out to Dan Lust, a, a good dear friend of ours, who has heard me say this before on a panel in front of an NCAA personnel. And I didn't care. I felt proud saying it. And I'll say it again here. The NCAA for decades has acted like a cartel, period. That is the truth. And, you know, for for the Alston decision, which showed all the flaws of how anti-competitive the NCAA did act, how it did monopolize and hoard all this money and was operating as a super league, making so much money while athletes were disadvantaged, like barely getting by with a stipend, it highlighted the flaws of the NCAA. So days after the Alston decision goes down, the NCAA is also facing pressure because each individual state in the U.S. is following its own name, image, and likeness legislation that would allow college athletes within that state to make money off of their name, image, and likeness for commercial use, for brand campaigns, sponsorships, social media campaigns, what have you. And then Alston's decision comes down. All this mounting pressure propels the NCAA to say, you know what? We're going to pass an NIL policy. Athletes now can make money off of their name, image, and likeness. So all of those events kind of led to this point now. Obviously, the NIL policy in the NCAA is very is still far from perfect. Um, there are people that think that it's a facade for college athletes to just make money for playing on the field. But that said, um, this college football video game series is a testament to uh, you know how how NIL legislation is is at least beginning to work and you know could be the the start of something pretty good for college athletes. Very interesting, and I will be purchasing the game. I, I'm a Florida Gator, and you you went to Fordham, right? Yeah, yeah, Fordham. They're, now they're, they're D two, D one. They, they they were D one double A, and which basically is like you know 
a sucky team. <laughs> but you know, it's crazy to think that Fordham's Fordham used to have Vince Lombardi on its uh, on its O line, and hmm. you know, I mean, that's like the the call to fame that we have for Fordham football. But the basketball team is great. That basketball team is like it, it killed. They killed it during the A ten conference. It's, it's unfortunate that they didn't make it to March Madness, but. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully there'll be a rise in uh, glory for Fordham football. Go Rams. Yeah, go Rams. Go Gators. All right. And lastly, we want to talk about our, in, in light of graduation, our favorite school related movie. Um, Tony, I'll go first. I do have like a tie for two of them. So I'm just going to say them both. Uh, the first one being School of Rock. You know, Classic. Th- the name is in the title. Let's rock. Let's rock today. Stick it to the man. Neos. It's just so many quotable lines. Jack Black at his finest. Absolutely. I believe it came out in 2003. Um, just an absolutely awesome movie. And uh, the, the songs, too, are just so catchy as well. Um, I, I forgot what they I forgot what the competition that they had was Battle of the Bands, I think was what it was called, yep. right? Battle yep. of the Bands. Yep. Just such a great movie. And then tied with it is She's the Man, the Amanda Bynes and Channing Tatum movie. I think that's when Channing Tatum was just coming onto the scene. He was just in Step Up as well. That is also an iconic movie. She's the man being um, where Amanda Bynes plays two characters. Well, really one. uh, Sebastian and Viola, their brother and sister, and she wants to play on a soccer team. (laughs) And Sebastian is her brother, and she dresses as a man. That's why it's called. She's the man. And then it's very. she like puts a tampon in her nose to get rid of a nosebleed. Channing Tatum was great in that movie. Really, really enjoyed it. Uh, what do you think, Tony? What's your, what are your favorite school movies? Um, I'm only going to pick one, uh, because there's so many to choose from, but my, if I had to pick a top one, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, uh, of course. I, I mean, just a classic Matthew Broderick at his finest as well. Um, Alan, um, Ruck, uh, Ruck who is in secession, which I can't believe we're coming up on the final episode, but this Sunday, the Sunday, which we could have a whole episode on, on that one. But, um, you know, uh, Alan Ruck also at a, you know, very young Alan Ruck, Ben Stein, who is a teacher, Bueller. Uh, Bueller, Bueller, to the point that that's usually what I use when students don't, when I ask a question, what's this case about? And I say Bueller, Bueller. Every boomer does that. Everyone <laughs> over the age of like 45, you're, you're, you're in the minority. Uh, I'm a, I'm a boomer millennial, I guess. So, <laughs> um, my favorite scene from that movie is easily the scene where they have that parade in Chicago and, uh, Ferris is singing, uh, Don Shen by Wayne Newton. It's just such a great scene. It's, it's, a it's a funny, uh, intriguing, engaging film. It's like a classic. It's a good classic 1980s movie. You can't doubt it whatsoever. It's just, it's great all around. Uh, my, my pick is always going to be first beer or stay off. I love that. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 15 and scene and entertainment law podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. We are recording remotely today from our apartments, but uh, we wanted to thank PNT Knitwear studios, of course, for all of their, hard work and letting us use the studio. We are so immensely appreciative of them and my cousin Hunter Zarin for the awesome theme music. And uh, before we do the official sign off again, a hearty congratulations to everybody that is graduating uh, law school this year, class of 2023, you guys rock, Uh, especially special shout out to my students uh, from New York law school. And my Uh, mentees, some of my mentees were your students. Yeah, for real. Just we have uh, have a a whole pipeline going on. We have a network of like Tony and Evan aficionados. (laughs) (laughs) So congratulations to you guys. You really deserve it. Uh, Good luck on studying for the bar exam, but more importantly, 
take the time that you need to relax and enjoy the and relish the the moment of graduating. Um, but most importantly, we want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of NC and Entertainment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us on all social media platforms at NCNPod. And until next time, NCNPod.